This week, Africa came to America for a three-day summit meeting as the future of an entire continent has become a fight among the world's superpowers. Today's guest is Ambassador Peter Pham, the first Vietnamese American to ever hold the rank of United States Ambassador and a distinguished fellow at the Atlanta Council who believes that the United States has a primary role and critical stake in partnering with African nations who will help shape the future of the world. From Ballard Studios, it's 13th and Park. The future doesn't belong to the faint party. There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. We will make America strong again. We will get through this together. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. Ambassador, welcome to 13th and Park. You've had a hell of a week so far. Thanks, Adam, for having me. But what day is this and what time <laughs> is it? It's been one of those weeks, yes. With 49 different African delegations here in town, many of whom I've worked with or know personally, it's been drinking out of the fire hose, so to speak. Well, first set the stage for us. So you've written that the relationship between the United States and African nations has waxed and waned throughout the years. Go back to the Clinton administration, his Defense Department, once considered Africa somewhat strategically irrelevant. And the last summit, of course, was under President Barack Obama. That was eight years ago. Are things changing in terms of the push in America to renew our relationships? And is that change happening fast enough given all the other superpowers that are already there? As someone who began his career at a time when as you mentioned, Adam, the Pentagon considered Africa strategically irrelevant. I've seen the full arc of that change mm. from strategic irrelevance to vital to national security interests. And so the discourse has changed, and it's founded on reality. This isn't just words. Just throw some data points out there. Mm. By 2050, when most of us will hopefully still be around, Africans will make up one quarter of the working age population in the world strategic minerals. We talk a lot these days about energy transition, electrification, decarbonization. Well, that's not going to happen without Africa. 70% mm -hmm. of the world's cobalt comes from just one African country, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, just to throw one data point out there. So it's vital. And then, of course, the challenges of great power competition, as well as security challenges, which continue. So let's pick up with cobalt. 70% of cobalt comes from one nation, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. I read somewhere that America has about six years of reserves of cobalt left. We all know now, as we're becoming more educated about the EV industry, electric cars, that that's a critical element in that and cell phones, et cetera. How can we possibly look at it the future with cobalt being one of the most critical minerals that bears on the future and not be all over having a relationship with the Congo and with others who have critical minerals throughout the continent? We can't. And that's the great delusion is that we can do any of these things, the energy transition, without Africa. And by the way, our position just on cobalt, just to stick with cobalt, not to get it too far in the weeds, it's even more critical than the six years you cite. That's if we manage to somehow permit and open right. minds and 
drag out every last ounce we have, it would last us six years. Mm-hmm. Obviously, with all those concerns about perming, we're not even close to that. So without Africa, there is no energy transition. But the problem is right now, because we haven't been involved and as engaged as we ought to be, 70% is mined in the Congo, but almost all of it is mined by Chinese firms who ship it to China where it's processed. So the real block is not Africa. Africa's the source, but our bottleneck is the fact that China processes. And when you get to rare earth elements, mm-hmm. which in many respects are even more critical than cobalt, our strategic position is even more dire. So I'm going to play for you a report that has to do with South Africa and the very difficult, complex geopolitics of everything that you just referenced because of China, Russia, and the others. Let's clue the clip. South Africa is America's biggest trade partner on the continent, with goods worth $21 billion exchanged last year. Economists here are optimistic about the potential of strengthening that relationship during the summit. They say the market here is ready for more trade with the U.S., but they also warn that South Africa will have to tread carefully. That's due mostly to China and, to a lesser degree, Russia, at a time of great geopolitical tensions between those countries and the United States. As part of BRICS, a grouping of the major emerging economies of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, the South African government would not want to alienate either Beijing or Moscow as it seeks even warmer ties with Washington. I think that kind of speaks for itself. We seem to have been relatively absent from the playing field on the African continent, while China and Russia and others have occupied very successfully, you might argue, how can we start to catch up a bit? Or is that even possible? Well, we need to. It's vital for our future. And I would argue vital for the future of Africans, that they have an alternative. But we really do have a lot of catching up to do. Because it's not just economic issues, trade. It's not an investment, not just political ties, but deep investment into the future. For example, that clip did mention how close the African National Congress, the ruling party in South Africa, has become in recent years mm-hmm. to the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, a couple of years ago, they signed an MOU and received funding from the Chinese Communist Party directly to train their future leadership cadres and to also send them to China to CCP institutions for further advanced training. And one presumes cultivation and influence. So we need to catch up. But America... I've always believed America has as its strength itself, but we can't compete if we're not there. And that's our big problem. There are three issues that were identified in the U.S.-Africa summit, technology, climate change, and trade. I didn't see the word security in there. And I've read a lot recently about the threats of terrorism that have taken root in certain parts of the continent. Isn't that something also that should be discussed in the course of a summit like this? And once again, When we talk about increasing trade or increasing investment, to think that China right now has invested over $700 billion in infrastructure loans on the continent, $700 billion, I think we're a mere fraction of that. Isn't that the kind of thing we should be focusing on here as opposed to trying to share common ground of values and other things that, you know, democracies pride themselves on? America has been exceptionally generous. It's invested heavily in Africa for years. PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Program for AIDS Relief, started with bipartisan support by George W. Bush, has saved millions of African lives. It's built an infrastructure in healthcare and testing that enabled Africa to weather fairly well 
the COVID pandemic. And so we've done all this, but we don't get the credit necessarily always for it. Now, there's a moral virtue to doing things and not getting credit, but in realpolitik, one would like a little bit of credit for these things. So America has been vested. America remains one of Africa's largest single bilateral aid donor. But again, we often don't think through these strategies strategically. There's almost an allergy to it. But we need to because our competitors certainly are thinking about their investments strategically, whether it be the loans for infrastructure of dubious quality, oftentimes, or in their engagements. They're very selective, Mm -hmm. very choosy, and they have a purpose. And we need to be that intentional about it. It can't be just one-offs or photo ops. So this year, there was the election for a new president in Kenya. It was actually a very close election, peacefully decided by the Supreme Court three days later in favor of now President Ruto. In 23, as many as 10 nations in Africa are going to hold elections for president from Nigeria and Liberia to Zimbabwe and Sierra Leone. Is this an opportunity that America has all over again to maybe have a fresh start or a reset given in Washington We now have a new composition in the Congress. It's certainly an opportunity, a fresh restart in cases where people in African countries elect new leaders to engage them quickly. To be balanced about it, for example, I give the Biden administration credit for the quick embrace of Zambia's new president who was elected democratically. Poor guy ran five times, uh, (laughs) got beat up a few times physically, but he finally was elected and has swept away a lot of the corruption, including bad debt owed to China, and we've embraced him. So there have been some good news stories, and that's a, a good example of that. In other places, elections are an opportunity not to hector or to lecture, although, you know, we certainly shouldn't lower our standards, but to encourage and to build. Because I think the important thing is that elections show progress. You know, America's elections still are contested and we still have kinks we have to work out. But the point is, it's a progressive thing and the best shouldn't be the enemy of the good. There's this heartwarming story coming from the World Cup where the president of Liberia, George Weah, who was an absolute all-world soccer star. He got every major award there was to have, played for all these major clubs. His son, Timothy, is on the United States national team and made a great account of himself as America at least got into the quarterfinals. This is a president, though, that recently has made a big push to stem corruption, be more open, et cetera. Is that the kind of thing that America is looking for, that kind of leadership among the nations that they can immediately embrace? And maybe is that more of an opening for America to, again, renew a relationship with a very, very long ally of theirs? Well, certainly, Adam, you bring up a country which arguably is the African country with the longest history with the United States, or at least in sub-Saharan Africa. Mm. But in that history, there's been ups and downs. There have been moments that perhaps were regrettable. And there are things that we have to review in that history. But it's one that's always been very close to the United States. And it's an opportunity to renew and refresh. I think the fact that Timothy Weah is a U.S. citizen born in Brooklyn even if his father is the president of Liberia, I think it it renews that connection. And look, the way a government isn't perfect, no government is, but they've made exceptionally 
good strides in, especially in the economic sector, against very strong headwinds of the pandemic, the drawdown of the peacekeepers, which was a major injection to the economy. They managed to cut the wage bill. I realize this is rather wonkish, but if someone reads the latest IMF report, it's very dry reading, I'll admit. I bet you uh, read that all the time, the IMF uh, the type, you know, And not because I have insomnia. Uh, <laughs> I find the data interesting and fascinating. But it's actually very complementary, actually, to the reforms that they did against very strong countervailing forces. So there's a good story in that. Are there issues? Yes, but let's work through them as partners. Africa doesn't need lectures. Africa doesn't need teach-ins. What Africa needs is honest, actual dialogue and engagement as a strategic partner. And respect. Very much so. So you wrote an article in The Hill last week talking about the transition in Sudan from military to civilian control. There was a military coup there, I I believe, in 2018. Tell me more about that and why should Americans feel that's a very significant storyline to watch? Well, one is we have to look at the full measure of things in their full context. The longtime dictator of the country, a man who's wanted by the International Criminal Court, Omar al-Bashir, was overthrown in 2018 by the, the Sudanese themselves. The military stepped in after street protests to just push him out. They have him in prison now. And then there's been a rough transition. They, there was a, a transitional government appointed, and then the prime minister was forced to resign. But recently, they've come up with a framework. The fact is, no road is going to be smooth and easy. But the U.S. should have come. Why? Because Sudan is located in that critical transition area between the Middle East and Africa. The Nile flows through Sudan. What happens in Sudan doesn't stay in Sudan. It impacts everything from its neighbors, Egypt, Libya, Yemen, South Sudan. And the U.S. has played a helpful role both with the framework agreement that has now recently been reached between the military who govern the country and the civilians' opposition and the transition that they're going to form. It's in our interest to help a company because in the vacuum where we are not, Others step in, and we've had we've seen actually in the last year forays by Russians, including the so-called Wagner Group, and others into this space. And so we need to we need to remember what happens when there's a vacuum. Peter, you've probably amassed more frequent flyer miles than anyone I know. I can only imagine what that number is. It's a big one, and you've been all over the continent. Share with us a story that gives you a sense of hope not just about the strategic relationship between America and Africa, but the common ground that the people of Africa and the people of America have naturally and can cheer for. One example that comes to mind is uh, one that occurred during my time in government service, serving at that time as special envoy for the Sahel. We had a young American citizen working in a development project in rural part of Niger, a country that is a critical ally. Uh, And for those who didn't know it, the Wall Street Journal had an excellent front page report on it just earlier this week about how important that country is as a firewall for us. The kidnapped by some criminals who intended to sell him as a hostage to a Islamic State-linked terrorist organization. We got nothing but cooperation from the government of Niger at the time the former president. I was in direct contact with him, the U.S. Special Envoy for Hostage Affairs, military, seamless And the story ended well, at least for the American. Less than a week, we got him safely back, less well for the kidnappers and the terrorists who were going to buy him. But total cooperation, everything was 
get the young man back. We're here for you. That type of, you know, bending over backwards for us. And you see that across the continent repeatedly. Africa wants America there. It wants this option of a partnership with America. But in order to do that, we have to be there. We have to be engaged, not just diplomatically, but also in business. Very oftentimes, it's easy to rail against Chinese business. And some of it is quite shoddy and quite questionable. But for Africans, sometimes, where is the American investor who's willing to go there? I don't believe in government subsidies or corporate welfare. But I do believe the government has a role in opening the door, helping encourage this, sending the right signals. And we have bipartisan legislation signed into law by President Trump, creating a U.S. Development Finance Corporation, with Congress authorizing $60 billion to help jumpstart projects, give a political guarantee, if you will, to projects that serve development, but also increase American business opportunities in these countries. And yet here we are almost more than four years later, and only half that money's been committed. You know, what commercial bank only lends out less than half the money that's in on deposit? And what kind of signal, Peter, does that send to American business that may be considering investments in Africa? Isn't that like, we're not quite ready to give you the full green light yet to reinforce, you know, how good that investment could be for them and for you? It certainly sends a very mixed signal, at the very least. And I think that's where we need to think aggressively more proactive in this. Now, there are, in my experience, there are ambassadors out there, U.S. government agencies out there, kind of on the tip of the spear pushing it. But there are others who, my experience talking to them, if I were an investor and now that I'm out of government and I'm in the private sector, if I didn't know better, I might run in the opposite direction. Is there one thing you could advise the president of the United States and all the others on the American side of this equation to do, to push, to talk about, what is that one thing? The one thing is engage. And I mean real engagement, not the artificial engagement of a photo op as you're coming and going from something, but real engagement. Africa is built on relationships. And that's not a simplification. It's the reality. You know, it's one of the reasons why I've had a blessed run because I've spent literally decades building relationships with people in good times and bad. And that's what we need to do as a country. As you said at the beginning, waxing and waning, which has been, you know, we're all there when we need or want something or we're fixated by something and then we're gone next day. And you have to think strategically and long-term. And that really means spending time with individual leaders, but really also spending time building relationships. Peter, I hope for the sake of the country and for the sake of the African continent that the relationship between America and uh, and African nations gets stronger, more legitimate, more continuing, more involved, and to use your word, more engaged. And I thank you for all your public service and I pray for your success because I think that's only going to inure to the benefit of every American and everyone on the African continent. Thank you for having me, Adam. Been a pleasure. Well, Peter Pham, the first Vietnamese American and U.S. ambassador in history, he is a walking textbook on the geopolitics of Africa. And I kept shaking my head through the course of this conversation because it's unfathomable why America isn't making more of an effort to renew and strengthen its relationships across the African continent. The summit, you know, we all cross our fingers that the summit will yield some tangible results. But I think 
when Peter used the word engagement. That's where it begins. Relationships count. So my top takeaways, one is, why is this only the second U.S.-Africa summit in the last eight years? The last one was in 2014 under President Obama, as opposed to the summits that have been given real priority by this administration dealing with Latin America and Asia. What is it about the African continent that isn't obvious to all of us? You're talking about a place on the planet that represents approximately 25% of the world's population, 65% of all arable land, the largest reserves in the world in critical minerals like uranium and cobalt, and gold and diamonds. In fact, I think the UN reported that the African continent altogether represents 30% of all mineral reserves on the planet. That should be obvious as a place of opportunity for a renewed engagement between America and Africa. And if you look at China, think about this number. China's bilateral trade last year with Africa was $254 billion. America, $64 $64 billion. Over $700 billion in infrastructure loans have already been extended by China to nations across the African continent. So if we really are serious about things like the EV revolution, if we're serious about controlling more of our destiny, if we want to find allies across the world who are pushing democratic principles as much as they possibly can, they're relatively new democracies, I was very heartened because I was actually in Kenya with my wife and friends. We land in Nairobi the night before the induction of the new president, Ruto, in a soccer stadium that holds like 60,000 people. What was amazing was they opened the gates to that stadium at 5 a.m. By 6 a.m., it was filled. And I think by 9 a.m., there were like 50,000 more people at the gates wanting to get in. The president-elect, Ruta, wasn't due to make his inaugural speech until something like two or three in the afternoon. So it's a wonderful example of democracy in action. It was a very tight race. It was basically 50-50 decided by the Supreme Court. So there's some wonderful stories that are coming out of Africa that should be instructive for all of us. Another takeaway is... That story that Ambassador Pham shared about the secret diplomacy having to do with the kidnapping of a Western official and how that was taken care of. And it was taken care of without great aplomb and without headlines. It was just done. It was an investment in a relationship between two nations that should be springing all sorts of dividends and renewed sense of alliance. And yet we're not quite there. The bottom line on what America should be looking at doing is engaging, using Peter's word again, engage, be a part of it. It makes absolutely no sense for us to be on the sideline while Russia and China and others are making strategic investments across the continent, including there was an effort by China not long ago to establish a military port on the west side of the continent. Now think about that. China would have a military port in West Africa on the Atlantic Ocean. And the other side, as you start to move west across the ocean, you have the United States. We do have strategic interests. We do have concerns about potential threats downstream. But in the here and now, we have absolutely compelling reasons why we should invest, invest strongly, and invest widely 
in various nations across the, the continent of Africa that hold such promise in shaping and powering the future of the world. One programming note, if it wasn't already obvious, my trusty co-host Justin Safey wasn't with me today. He's on assignment abroad. Wish him safe travels. Here from Ballard Studios, thanks for joining us. Don't miss future episodes by following us on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast platforms. Or go to the YouTube channel where you can subscribe for free. 